Up to his knees in frozen Flanders mud, under leaden skies and incessant rain, this was not what Private Harry Dewson had expected when he'd signed up in August 1914. It will all be over by Christmas, they'd said. And now it was February, and it was still raining, and he felt feverish and cold, and the lice which infested his uniform were giving him jib. My name is John Pope. I'm a volunteer speaker with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and have an interest in ordinary men and women who served in extraordinary times. Harry Dewson and others like him were volunteers. Some were conscripts. Some had the time of their lives, while others were scarred mentally and physically or simply failed to return home to their loved ones. They weren't all heroes and they weren't all decorated, but for most, war at home and abroad was an experience which shaped them and changed them. Drawing on books, official records, internet resources and personal recollections from friends and families, I've pieced together just some of the stories of those who served. Join me in this episode to learn more about Private Harry Dewson of the Kensingtons, the 13th Battalion, the London Regiment. Harry Dewson was born on 25th of November 1891 in West Ham, London. His father and mother, Thomas and Emily, had moved to London from their family homes in Norfolk and Lincolnshire. Thomas's family had been publicans in King's Lynn, and Emily's father an engine driver on the London North Eastern Railway. Like many others of the late Victorian period, Thomas and Emily moved to the city for greater opportunity, both for themselves and their family. However, raising children at that time had its challenges, Harry was their first child, and the first for several years to survive infancy, with two brothers, Frank and Leonard, dying before the age of two. The infant mortality rate in the 1890s was 225 per thousand live births, as opposed to four per thousand live births in the 2020s. And as we'll hear again later, the coming age of improved public health and the advent of antibiotics would make a major difference in the period of 1900 to 1950. Despite this, several miscarriages and losing another child, Grace, in 1901, Thomas and Emily raised four children. Harry, a sister, and two younger brothers, who we may hear more of in later podcasts. At the turn of the century, the Dewson family moved to Shakespeare Crescent in East Ham, a fairly new development then of terraced houses with long, narrow gardens and close to the railway and district underground line. Harry and his siblings were educated locally at Kensington Mixed Board School, which still operates as a primary school today. When Harry left school at the age of 12 in 1904, he found employment as a live-in warehouse and store assistant for George Brettles of Gutter Lane, near St Paul's. The business was a hosier's and haberdasher and supplied all the lace, elastic and cotton for Edwardian ladies to sew their own undergarments. They did make ready-to-wear, including some of the first brassiers, but they were expensive and most women preferred to make their own. If Harry and other young people like him were concerned about diplomatic tensions between Britain, France and Russia and Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then contemporary photographs rarely hinted it. With a weekly salary of 28 shillings and beer at a penny a pint, they seemed more interested in trips to the picture house, the music halls and taking the train to Margate Beach for the day. 
Two photographs of his beach outings with chums to Margate will be included on the Those Who Served website. When war did break out on August 4th, 1914, Harry was among the first in the line, joining up 109 years ago today at Averna Gardens with the 13th County of London Princess Louise's Kensington's Battalion, the London Regiment, known as the Kensington's for short. Whether this was about a patriotic fever, the opportunity for adventure abroad, or a bit of a change from daily work is hard to know. After all, young men and women volunteered for all sorts of personal reasons. It's likely, though, that Harry, like many others, thought it would all be over by Christmas. So he was sent for training at Abbots Langley near Watford, and two months later, in his 1914 pattern webbing and soft field hat, he sailed for Le Havre on the SS Mathuran on the 4th of November 1914, as part of the 25th Brigade, the 8th Division. The Battalion War Diary describes an arduous journey by boat, train and marching with a spell of training in between until they arrived in Estere and took the line in the Labasse sector at Fokisart on the 17th of November 1914. They remained in the line on and off for almost four months with A and B companies alternating duty with C and D companies. Harry was part of D Company and the role records him as Private Number 1711 Dewson HW. The diary for that period often repeats the phrases wet, very wet, incessant rain, mud, and constant sniping, with the entry for 2nd of December simply reading very wet trenches beginning to fill with water, Brigadier inspected C&D companies, and 5th of December, very wet, Repairs and improvements difficult, with men showing signs of wear and many sick. The geology and low-lying topography of that area of France meant that artillery fire had already damaged the flooded ditches and drainage systems beyond repair. Any new trenches simply filled with water and were impossible to maintain, as the water washed the soil away. To combat this, the British dug breastworks, topped with sandbags, with some shallow communication trenches immediately behind. The Germans enjoyed slightly better drainage on the higher ground to the east, in the Bois de Biez and towards Aubert's Ridge, a shallow rise of just a few metres, but it made the difference. A contemporary trench map of the area in which Harry served can be seen on the website. Much has been written about the Christmas truce of 1914, and it has its fair share of myths and legends, with football matches, carol singing, and exchanging cigarettes and chocolate in no man's land. For his part, the adjutant of the 13th London simply wrote, Very quiet all day, and at dawn they shouted that they would not fire if we did not do so, could take no action as units on right and left were out on parapet. Circumstances reported favourably by adjutant to officer commanding 25th Brigade at 9am. So clearly something unusual was happening in that sector on Christmas Day, although Harry Dewson never revealed if he played a role or not. There is a separate typewritten addendum in the war diary, presumably also written by the adjutant Captain G. Thompson, which reads as follows. Shortly after settling in, we heard a voice, Englishman, Englishman, happy Christmas to you. And in answer we replied, same to you and many of them. Soon Christmas trees all lighted up, appeared on the German parapet and they started singing carols to which we replied. 
Later we heard that there was to be no firing till 5pm on Christmas Day. Next day, after stand down, we saw Germans walking about no man's land in groups, and I saw some of our men out too, and also the men of the Scots guards on our left. I allowed my men to go in pairs and reconnoitred my own line on the top, finding that my only habitable piece of trench was separated by 150 yards of impassable trench on one side, and 200 yards of deeply flooded line on the other. I doubled the sentries and one of our Royal Engineer officers came down and examined the wire, but the Bosch told him we could do what we liked behind the wire, but if we did anything to the wire they would fire at us. So I constructed a new trench to the left of my company, which was three feet deep in water within 48 hours. The truce lasted all day, and from the fraternisation we identified the enemy as the 13th, 126th and 158th German infantry. There appeared to be no further action taken, and although Boxing Day was quiet, the Kensingtons were ordered to remain in their trenches by their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Lewis. Unfortunately, the adjutant, Captain Thompson, was killed by a sniper in February 1915. If you'd like to hear recordings of soldiers who witnessed or took part in the Christmas truce, you can hear Voices of the First World War, The Christmas Truce, an excellent series on the Imperial War Museum website. A link to the relevant recording will be included on thosewhoserve.co.uk. The rain, flooding and mud continued well into January and February 1915, and although the Kensingtons had some time out of the line in nearby Estere and Lavanti, men started to fall ill with various trench diseases. The Western Front Association, among others, has produced some detailed assessments of the impact of trench foot, trench fever and trench mouth. Over 20,000 cases of trench foot were recorded by the British Army in the winter of 1914-15, and although the regimental medical officers made regular foot inspections and offered fresh dry socks and copious quantities of whale oil were rubbed into freezing feet, soldiers were often left with permanent damage, and in severe cases gangrene, for which amputation was the only answer. Trench fever was caused by the bacterium Rickettsia quintana, which was carried in the faeces of the human louse. Lice infested most soldiers at some point in their military service, especially in the forward lines, and bred rapidly in the folds, pleats and seams of uniforms. Their bites were itchy, and repeated scratching meant that the lice faeces and the rickettsia soon infected the soldiers' bloodstream. Men would often sit in groups, removing the lice from their uniforms, sometimes with the backs of spoons or matches or knives, and talking together. Lice became known as chats, and removing the lice became known as chatting, which is where our phrase, to have a chat, first originates. Whilst the lice were annoying, the army was then unaware of its link to trench fever, which included severe headaches, muscular pain, and pains in the shins. It was also known as shinbone fever, and in recurrent cases, severe depression. Estimates suggest that 80% of the men who developed trench fever remained unfit for duty for up to three months, and throughout the war there were as many as 800,000 cases, approximately 10% of all those who served. The impact of trench foot, fever and mouth, which led to ulceration and gingivitis on the competence of all sides in World War I, should not be underestimated, 
and was a severe drain on army medical resources and the available fighting strength. After several months of standing knee-deep in freezing mud and water, Harry Dewson succumbed to both trench foot and trench fever in February and March 1915. In early March, Harry Dewson's war record and the battalion war diary contradict one another. His war record states that he was returned sick to Britain on the 6th and 7th of March 1915. The war diary suggests he was moved from D Company to B Company in time for the first major attack by the British Expeditionary Force on the German front lines at the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle from the 10th to the 13th of March 1915. The battalion had just received a draft of new men, so it's possible that Harry was moved with two other privates, 1310 David and 1513 Drury, to bolster an understrength company and support the men who were new to the front line. A link to the website Long Long Trail, with a brief but informative account of the battle, is included on the thosewhoserve.co.uk website. Although working in a reserve role, carrying wire, ammunition and providing fire support, the Kensingtons lost 42 killed and 103 wounded at Neuve-Chapelle. Whether he played a role or not, Harry Dewson was soon home, since his name does not appear in the role for subsequent engagements in Ypres, Aubert's Ridge or Fromelle. He had a fortunate escape, as the battalion lost so many men in that period of April to July 1915 that it was withdrawn from the 25th Brigade and moved into reserve at General Headquarters until its losses could be replaced. Harry's record suggests that he recovered from trench foot and trench fever sufficiently by the 14th of May to be transferred to the 3rd 13th Londons, a training battalion with responsibility for supplying reinforcements and other duties within Britain. Then, in September 1916, whilst guarding naval installations at Hilsea near Portsmouth, Harry contracted gonorrhea. The Army in World War I viewed sexually transmitted diseases as a serious drain on resources. Some medical officers saw it as a distraction from treating those wounded during fighting, while some senior officers may have seen it as a natural consequence of young men with a little money away from home and with opportunities readily available. Brothels displayed blue lamps for officers and red lamps for other ranks. Soldiers were issued with French letters after the small paper envelope containing the condoms. And advice, there was a note from Lord Kitchener in every soldier's paybook which read, In this new experience you may find temptations both in wine and women. You must entirely resist both. But some also saw it as a moral stain or the equivalent of a self-inflicted wound and depending on the views of the commanding officer, an infected soldier may find himself disciplined or liable to what was known as hospital stoppages, a suspension of pay whilst being treated in hospital. In the pre-antibiotic age, gonorrhea was treated by the irrigation of the urethra and bladder with argyrol, a silver nitrate solution, and benetol, betanaphthol. Both were toxic and corrosive antiseptics. This unpleasant and painful treatment meant Harry had 18 days in hospital before he was permitted to return to light duties. The army treated 5.2% of those who served, or over 416,000 known cases of gonorrhea and syphilis, with between 40 to 50,000 men out of action at any one time, which is the equivalent of two fighting divisions. 
Many men, married or single, avoided mentioning this topic on their eventual return home, when the focus had already moved to Spanish influenza, which killed almost 230,000 people in the UK alone. Not surprisingly, many wives and girlfriends also became infected with venereal disease too. Harry remained with the 3rd 13th Londons until April 1917, when he was briefly transferred to the 4th 1st Cambridgeshire Regiment and promoted to acting unpaid lance corporal. He was employed as a clerk at brigade headquarters, but in August 1917 was sent before the medical board at Worley in Essex and deemed medically unfit. He was discharged from the army on the 8th of August under paragraph 392, section 16 of the King's Regulations, without a disability pension, but with a gratuity of £26. If you have researched a relative who served in World War I, you may have seen this phrase abbreviated to KR392 brackets XV1, perhaps in relation to a Silver War badge, sometimes known as the Wound Badge or Discharge Badge. Over 1.1 million were issued from 1916 to 1920, so almost 14% of all those who served in uniform were discharged as unfit for further service. At the medical, Harry was told that the nerve damage to his feet would be temporary, but he wore at least two pairs of socks for the rest of his life, and was prone to suffer during cold and damp weather. After the war concluded, he returned to civilian life and took up his old job with George Brettles, becoming a commercial traveller for the south of England. In December 1921, he married Barbara Smeaton at All Saints Church, Fulham by Putney Bridge. They had three daughters and eight grandchildren and moved from Putney to Hove and later Worthing on the West Sussex coast. He enjoyed players Navy Cut, Mint Imperials and Cribbage and his one memento from the trenches was a cribbage board made from an old wooden trench support. Apparently, he never said much about his war service, and there was a tacit agreement amongst family members not to ask him. Like many of his generation, that few months in the trenches over the winter of 1914-15 had a lasting effect on his health, mobility and quality of life, even though he lived to be 85. He died after a short bout of illness on the 5th of May 1977. After Barbara died in 1980, a small box was discovered in the house with his medals. A 1914 star, war medal and victory medal, known as Pip, Squeak and Wilfred after the Daily Mirror cartoon. It was written by Bertram Lamb, known as Uncle Dick, and drawn by the cartoonist Austin Bowen Payne. Pip was a dog, Squeak a penguin and Wilfred was a young rabbit. Stories suggest that A.B. Payne's Batman during the war had been nicknamed Pip Squeak, hence the names of the dog and penguin. The common nickname for the war and victory medals on their own was Mutt and Jeff, also named after a cartoon strip of the time. There was also a silver war badge in the box, a dented clip of live .303 ammunition and two shrapnel balls, and his red shoulder flashes marked Kensington's. Sadly, these were all mislaid during a house clearance. In many respects, Harry Dewson's few short months at the front typifies that of thousands of young men who served in World War I. The possibility of adventure soon gave way to boredom, with long periods standing in frozen Flanders mud, lousy with lice, feverish and homesick, whilst his pals were picked off by snipers. Many never went over the top, 
Many never went near the front line, and many who did both but survived were scarred forever, even with those minor but troublesome conditions which affected their day-to-day existence for decades to come. Some had it much worse. A few had it better, but the Harrys of this war also deserve to be remembered. I'd like to thank the Dewson family for sharing some photographs of Harry. I'd also like to thank the Long Long Trail and the Western Front Association for their excellent articles on Nove Chapelle, illness and disease in the trenches, and the Imperial War Museum for access to recordings, war diaries and regimental records. Until next time, thank you for listening to Those Who Served with me, John Pope. You can find links to further material on the website, thosewhoserved.co.uk, via Twitter, at thosewhoserved, and Instagram, those.whoserved. You can show your support for this free podcast by clicking on Buy Me A Coffee, or by donating through the Patreon page. All donations are used to cover the costs of research, production, and syndication. You can join in with the show by sharing what details you know of a family member or friend who served in a 20th century conflict. Simply follow the links on the website or contact me directly by email at info at those who Thank you.